Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey, Sandeep, it's fantastic to have you on the show today. How are you doing? Thank you, Michael. I'm doing well. Very, very good. So as a starting point, because you've got such an interesting background and because it's so tech focused, given what's happening in the world today, I thought as a starting point, maybe you can give the audience a rundown of your career so they have a better appreciation for the discussion we're going to have. Well, thank you. You know, it all started with my love for mathematics. And I followed my passion and got a PhD in electrical engineering. And thereafter, I was uh, basically, I wanted to work in the mobile radio field. And uh, I got a very interesting job at GE Corporate Research. A few years later, having built a team, Ericsson bought out my team. And we became Ericsson Research for Mobile Phones. And 12 years later, uh, I rotated through various parts of Ericsson and became their chief technical officer for mobile phones. I got the opportunity also along this journey to run the mobile phone divisions for North and South America and Australia and New Zealand. We got into some tough times and yes. you know, we merged with Sony to form Sony Ericsson. And I was their first chief technical officer. And uh, we had a very wonderful time actually building multimedia phones, which propelled the company forward. As part of that journey, uh, I was asked to go to Sweden to help them actually deliver a platform from an Ericsson company called Ericsson Mobile Platforms. And uh, I went to Sweden, was able to uh, make that company successful. Uh, you know, when I went there, for every dollar they made, they lost a dollar. So we were able to turn it around and get significant market share. And Sony Ericsson used those platforms and grew. I came back to America, joined a semiconductor business called Freescale, which was sold to private equity for a significant amount of money. I then decided at that point that I would like to basically go and work uh, in my own business. And I wanted to basically get the experience of looking from outside inwards rather than inside out. And so I became a management consultant and I had five multinational clients, which I helped yes. over the next five years. And that led me to uh, BlackBerry, uh, where I was asked to analyze and provide some recommendations. I ultimately joined them and ran five of their smaller divisions and had a really good run, making them rather profitable and growing significantly. And the last part of my journey is that uh, after I left BlackBerry, because I promised them five years, and I, after that tenure, I decided to get back into the startup world. And today I work in a, in a semiconductor startup, which builds radar chips for autonomous driving. Wow, that's quite a storied career. I must say, no one's ever started their resume by saying, 
because of a love of mathematics, you'd be the first guy <laughs> started it that way. But I can see you have a passion for it. So there's a lot of interesting things we can talk about. I want to start with something quite basic, right? You were at Sony Ericsson at the time when Sony Ericsson believed they had a shot at building a sustainable business in the mobile handset market. So as a staging point for our discussion on why companies fail, let's use Sony Ericsson as a starting point for talking about what did not work out as intended there. Yeah, it's actually an extremely good question. Uh, you know, when we formed Sony and Ericsson, uh, Sony Ericsson from Sony and Ericsson, uh, you know, neither parts of the business were doing well. So when we put it together, we were around, I think, somewhere around six to seven billion in yes. revenue. But we lacked a strategy. In fact, we tried to copy Nokia. Yes, that's and right. That was foolish because Nokia had distribution, a superior supply chain, a better brand, and scale. And uh, it was really not a fair competition. So very quickly, our revenue was dwindling and it dropped perilously. And then we said, okay, what can we do different that can leverage the technical strength on the telecom area of Ericsson and the content from Sony? And we came up with the concept of multimedia phones, the precursor to the modern smartphone. And we said, hey, how about if our phones could play music, show videos, take pictures, have color displays, have security and all sorts of interesting things. And we would yes. essentially meet the needs of customers wanting to do very different things with their phones. And we embarked on that strategy. And that led me to EMP delivering the platforms. And based on that, uh, Sony Ericsson actually grew from somewhere around 4 billion up to close to 12 billion. So, um, you know, there, it was a story where we initially, without a strategy, uh, we were basically lost. But when we did have a strategy and we could execute, then we were successful. So I used to be a user of Ericsson phones way back in, I think, 2003 or 2002. I liked the phones, to be honest. I thought they had a unique look. They had a unique feel and so on. What's interesting about the way you speak is that often when people talk about copying a company, they talk about copying the company's products. But when you talked about copying a company, yeah, you were talking about the distribution, the branding, the assets around the product. So you feel it wasn't a product failure on Sony Ericsson's side. It was the the supporting assets that didn't allow the product to succeed? Yeah, it's a, you know, when you look at a company, you have to look at it holistically. And that yes. is what I talk about in my book. You can't look at it from one dimension, just products, because you have to distribute it. You have to manufacture it with low cost, high quality. There's a lot of aspects that go in with it. And I believe that uh, when we started, uh, we basically were trying to basically be Nokia without having their attributes. And that was the wrong thing for us. So any company, just looking at another company and looking, trying to mimic its products or try to do a better product won't be good enough. You have to worry about 
all of the aspects in order to deliver to the proposition that you set out to do. So for our listeners, we have many listeners in senior positions. What should be the things they are looking at in their businesses to understand if they are succeeding or failing? Well, I, I always start with uh, I always start uh, with a very simple metric in any business that I have run. Uh, I have a golden rule. And my golden rule is, uh, other than being in a startup and an established business, I believe that your free cash flow to the firm must be greater than the enterprise value times the weighted average cost of capital. And that's a metric that I've used to drive all my businesses. Could you repeat the metric for me? The metric is uh, your free cash flow to the firm must be larger than the enterprise value multiplied by the weighted average cost of capital. And a very simple example I give is, let's say you borrow a uh, $100,000 from a bank at an interest rate of 5%, right? So you have to pay $5,000 in interest every year. So if your business cannot generate that $5,000 to pay the bank, you're not going to be able to service your debt. Okay. So, so just like just that the $100,000 is like the enterprise value of the com- of the company. And the weighted average cost of capital is the interest. So your free cash flow must be larger than this value so that you can actually give a return to your investors so they continue to invest in you and trust you. So it's a type of a proxy for an economic profit type of calculation. It is basically the metric that I use. And then I build everything around the business to meet that metric. So as long as a business is paying off its cost of capital, that is a starting yeah, point so, for creating value. Yeah, at least that. I mean, you must at be least, able yes. to. And the cost of capital, the co- cost of capital doesn't have to be. It's not just debt, right? Yes. So debt is something you have to service. But even if you have investors who are investing in equity, they need to get a certain return. Otherwise, why should they continue investing in the company? They can sell their stock and go somewhere else. So it's extremely important to make sure that you can return um, money to your investors. And I use that as my base metric. And then, of course, build the various aspects that I talk about in my book on how you can do that. I like that because it goes back to the fundamentals of strategy and corporate finance. It's a very simple metric to understand. It's not confusing. Shareholders will understand it, debt holders will understand it, and so on. So using that as a starting point, what would you say would be the next pillars that you need to consider to ensure the viability of a business? So, you know, I I always talk about, uh, you know, I use this analogy of a castle. Yes. Right? And I ask the question, how have medieval castles lasted over 500 years? They've been hammered by nature's elements right? And they've also been attacked by invaders. Nature's elements are akin to macroeconomic factors that affect our businesses, recessions, depressions, wars, etc. And the invaders are competitors. 
So you must start with an unassailable location if possible. And that's your business model. Can you make your business model sticky? That means in the face of competition, will your customers stay with you rather than mm -hmm. switch? Number two, how do you generate cash to meet the metric I just spoke about? And I look at all the parameters that generate cash and consume cash. And how do you optimize them so that you generate more cash than you consume? And that's really the foundation of the business. Now, on the foundation, you build a perimeter wall in a castle that surrounds the castle. In business, that's your strategy. How do you make sure that your strategy is all-encompassing? It addresses the right opportunities. It makes you build products or services that are relevant to the market with differentiation and outdoes the competition. And also look at your own capabilities. Can they deliver to that proposition? Because if you don't have the capabilities, you will your strategy will never materialize. The next thing is, I maintain that strategy is what you want to get done. But culture determines what you actually get done. So if your culture is not aligned with your strategy, you're going to fail. So how do you basically instill the culture in your workforce? And I won't go into all the aspects, but I've mentioned how you can do that in a company. Mm -hmm. And then you have to lead also to ensure that that culture and your own contributions materialize. The, you know, the, the strategy by itself cannot last because it's a big perimeter wall and people can scale it, invaders can scale it, they can tunnel under it. So you need to have towers interspersed along the wall to protect it, which houses guards. And I believe there are four such towers. One is product creation. How do you create winning products? The second one is how do you deliver these winning products to market? you know, with the right cost, the right quality, and the right time. How do you build sales channels, which are your pipes of sustenance? That's what brings money into the company. How do you close deals? How do you forecast? How do you do all these things that are important to make sure that revenue keeps coming in? And there's execution, which you have to do day in and day out in order to make sure that your company is successful. And there are recipes that I provide in the book with uh, for all these aspects. And finally, there is, uh, you know, the, I call the culture the central portion of the castle, which is called the keep. And the keep needs a roof. And the roof is, in my analogy, stakeholder confidence, which is how do you basically get the confidence of your investors? How do you get the confidence of your customers? And how do you get the confidence of your employees? When you do all of this in a systematic and structured manner, which reinforces each element, you build a very successful company. So you and I both know very talented CEOs who run amazing companies. They have the right credentials, the right experience, they went to the right business schools. And what you say makes eminent sense and logic to me. Why is it that so many companies fail by getting these principles wrong? Well, I mean, it's easy. It's, I. It depends, but you know, you're right. The statistics are quite alarming uh, 
essentially there's an article in Forbes that talks about that uh, 20% of companies fail in two years. Yes. Five and five years and 65% in 10 years. And the study goes on to basically talk about reasons for failure. And they, the main reason really is people adopting, adopting speed over structure. Now, you don't have to be bureaucratic with huge number of processes, but you have to have a systematic way of building a business. Like if you build a great product, but you don't have sales channels, you have a problem. If you have a great product and you're arrogant and you don't have customer buy-in, you have a problem. So how do you build the different aspects of your business? And common reasons for failures of smaller businesses is that they didn't do enough market research. Yes. They didn't, they miss, completely misjudged their competition. They had the wrong pricing. The market would not bear the price because they didn't do enough research. They didn't have the right people. And uh, most importantly, most of the time, they just run out of money because they focused on the wrong things and they ran out of money. Yeah, that's pretty common where companies go after something, but they haven't thought through the cash required to see to completion. You see this often at tech companies. They take on very big endeavors that cost billions, if not tens of billions of dollars, and they don't have the cash to see it through. So as a CEO, following these principles, what would you advise them to do in managing their businesses? Because if I had to speak to my clients and I list out these principles, I'm pretty sure all of them would tell me, Michael, we're already doing this. But it's clear they're not doing it because the results don't speak to that. So where does the disconnect lie? Where do we get them to focus? How do we get them to think differently to get better results using these principles? You know, uh, you're right. I mean, a lot of companies uh, probably are doing many things. Yes. Um, but the, the real truth, the health signs, are what metrics are they using in order to gauge their business? And how are they using those metrics? Now, the best metrics that tell me how my business are, is doing are those that are diagnostic. I want the metrics to be thermostats, not thermometers. What does that mean? That means that you know a thermometer tells you the temperature. Yes. A thermostat reacts to temperature. So you want your metrics to be diagnostic, whether they're financial, operational, competitive, people-related metrics. You want to design the right set to basically tell you what is the pulse of your business regularly and how is it doing versus your, versus your annual operating plan. And when you see small deviations or you sense small deviations, how do you react immediately to correct it? Because when the problem grows or the crack gets bigger and bigger, it takes mountains to actually fix things. So the secret is in all these businesses uh, is to basically find out what metrics you use to track the health and to take immediate action and to, to fix things. Now, this doesn't happen unless you understand your business really well and you're able to 
actually create this diagnostic system. Yes. Uh, now, there are, that's not, that is, but that's more an execution related item. You have to be equally knowledgeable about and question, is your strategy right? And do you have the capability to execute your strategy? So let's go back to strategy, right? Oftentimes, it's hard to distinguish between a good and a bad strategy. They look the same. In hindsight, it's easy to see the differences. So how would you go about thinking through what makes a good strategy versus a suboptimal strategy? Well, I, I use a very simple model, which I call ORCA, just mm -hmm. like the web. Yeah. O stands for opportunity. R stands for relevance. And CA stands for capability. You know, obviously, the you got to go after a strategy has to, whatever you're planning to do, must address a reasonable opportunity so you can bring in that revenue. Okay. So how do you scout for where there are these big opportunities? You always want to fish in lakes where there's a lot of fish. And, uh, and you want to basically catch something big. You don't want to basically catch minnows. And you also don't want to go to a place where there are a lot of people with fishing poles right there. Yeah. You the fishing pole, hopefully you'll catch something. That's probably hopefully the only one with a fishing pole. There. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> the second part is you have to ask yourself hard questions and not get carried away by your innovation. You have to ask yourself, is the product relevant to the market? Put yourself in the shoes of the buyer and say, why will they buy it? What's the reason for them to buy it? Are you basically intersecting a new technology trend? Do you have a new business model? Right? What disruption are you bringing? Are you creating a need for the customer? Right? What is the, so that's the relevance. Then you've got to look at your competition and say, how will they react when you get to market? What will they do? Right? Instead of just doing a SWOT analysis on yourself, do a SWOT analysis on them and see what you learn. And then what is the sustainable differentiation you're bringing, right? Is it truly sustainable? You have to ask yourself those hard questions. And finally, when you've got all of this nailed down, ask whether you have the capability to execute in time. Because, you know, if your timing is everything, uh, the, if you're basically, it's like being on a station when a train comes, and that's like a trend. You jump on the train. When the train leaves the station, if you are if you come late, you're not going to get on the train. So you'd miss the window. The uh, and and also, do you have enough wood behind the arrow for that arrow to fly straight and fast? Like, are you only a product company? Do you have sales? Do you have marketing? Do you have production? Do you have forecasting? Do you have the stakeholder confidence. You have to think of everything before you actually say your strategy is solid. Yes. And, and I don't think a number of companies vet their strategies sufficiently. I think that's where the issue lies. Yes, this makes me think about a discussion I had recently with a board member of a major auto company. And we were talking about the decision to exit a major market in Asia. He kept using the language that company X doesn't have the capability to do this. But what I was pointing out to him is that the issue is they haven't found a leader 
to lead the initiative in that country and pull the resources required. And until they find that leader, they shouldn't be talking about company X. They need to be talking about the leader they can find to drive that initiative. Because company X isn't doing anything. It's individuals that are driving things. And the reason I bring this up is because we've been talking now about these very valid principles for how to run companies, create sustainable value, and so on. And all of these different metrics and considerations we need to keep in the back of our minds. What do you think is the light kind of leadership temperament needed to create sustainable value? These are all the principles and so on. When we're looking at leaders and CEOs, what should we be looking for in them? Yeah, so um, there are a number of uh, characteristics that I have found in good leaders because I worked for many of them and many of them taught me. So one is, it's very important that a leader has good vision and not only has vision, but has conviction because when they have a sound vision and they have conviction, you know things will go wrong, but they have to have the conviction to persevere so yes. that uh, you know there are scores of skeptics who are going to say, hey, you're wrong. Yeah. And are you going to continue hell or high water knowing that you 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 can actually succeed? That's one aspect. And I think your employees will also want you to show that conviction because you have to convince them. The second is normally these leaders have an ability to engage with their employees in a very inclusive and a purpose-driven manner. They keep their employees informed, they engage with them, they're accessible, and they build trust with their employees in order to contribute in a purposeful manner. And one of the attributes these leaders have is to have managerial courage. Which so means do you say manager and? Managerial courage. Managerial courage. And that is, you know, it's important to always do, uh, to, to do things that is right for the company. And, you know, when you basically form clubs, you're biased, uh, you favor some people, you know, it doesn't, the, you cannot build a strong culture. When yes. you build a culture for, based on meritocracy, where you, you, you basically reward people based on the merit of their arguments, not on who they know, you know, you start building a, a culture of, of trust. And uh, the next thing is these leaders always led by example. They uh, always work as hard as the hardest employees. They never ask their employees to do anything that they won't do. And they keep their commitments. These leaders also communicate with extreme clarity. They're not interested if you are clapping at their speech. What they're yes. more interested in is to find out did you get what they wanted you to get? The actions that they're giving their employee, was it clear and can it be executed? And all these leaders also are curious. They want to evolve. And they're, they're curious not only about their own company, but the entire market in the world because they know an attack can come from anywhere. And by being curious and learning and being open-minded, they're willing to change and adapt. And that is how they last. So these are some of the principles that I have 
actually gleaned from top leaders. And I talk about this in a section in my book. Yes, I remember that. Do you feel that the American archetype of what is a leader has changed over the last few decades? Do you feel we've been more accepting of different types of leadership? Or do you feel we are more gravitating towards a dominant style of leadership that is accepted? Well, um, you know, um, I don't know whether I'm qualified to answer that question. Yes. Uh, but uh, it depends how you define leadership. Because uh, I've used, I follow a definition by uh, Joel Arthur Barker. He wrote a beautiful book. And uh, his definition is a manager is someone who manages within a paradigm. And a leader is someone who manages between paradigms. And that's a very important distinction. So for me, I consider those who manage within a paradigm as managers and those who manage between paradigms who can make that paradigm shift and can execute to that paradigm shift by bringing their employees along, bridging that chasm and ensuring that they can bring that change. They are leaders. So in that definition, uh, if you follow that, I mean, you can classify people whether they're managers or leaders. And how does the book or how would you define paradigm? So an example was, uh, you know, a paradigm shift is like, remember that I, we, we earlier in the conversation, we talked about Sony Ericsson being stuck doing regular phones. The paradigm shift was, hey, how about doing multimedia phones? No one in the world had done it. We had to completely change our technology architecture. We had to completely change our software. We had to change the content partnerships and the ecosystem we needed to basically build. We had to basically look at different distribution channels. So all of those things are very different from what we did, what we were doing. And that was a big leap. And that's a paradigm shift. So when you can actually envision and execute that, you are executing a paradigm shift. I like that example. So a paradigm shift is not just a new priority. It's a whole new way of doing business. That's the way yeah, you define it. It's a whole it. new way, and it's got all of the aspects that will make that different way of thinking successful. Yes. So coming back to basics, right? what would you say are some of the core principles a company needs to follow to keep an advantage that it has. Earlier, we spoke about what companies need to do to build, where they need to focus on to create value. Once you've reached that position where you do have a dominant position, do you keep doing more of the same or do you need to refocus on different things? No, I think uh, one of the things that I advocate is that, uh, and we did this at in the early days in Ericsson where when we were yes. leading and we did it at other companies, is to constantly ask yourself, right, why will we keep our leadership? Mm -hmm. A management team and an extended managing team must actually have regular off-site sessions where they focus and look at what are others doing in various areas of the business where is the next attack going to come from, even if you believe it is remote? 
Yes. You know, it's there is a book on there's a book on this principle. You know, which uh, talks about uh, a number of players who there's a management team and they're in a, in a gym, and they're paired as uh, two people are paired up, and they're asked to pass a basketball between them. At you know, they're throwing it yes. to each other and they're focusing. They should not drop the ball. And they're very intensely focused on not dropping the ball and they're passing the ball rapidly between them. While they're doing this exercise, a person in a gorilla suit runs across the room. And they're then asked, how many of you noticed the gorilla in the room? And many of the people who were so intently focused on what they were doing did not notice the gorilla. And that is something that should never happen to a company. But it does happen to a company quite it often, does. actually. And that's because I think they get, I think maybe complacency sets in. Uh, but they've got to constantly be paranoid to find out how are they going to be attacked. And yes. this is where they go and look and see which part of their castle is crumbling. It's, it's constantly it needs to be repaired and shored up. So this is where the metrics matter a lot. To look at them and say, diagnostically, it looks like we are plateauing and maybe on the downtrend. Who's going to disrupt us? And if they do this, what happens? And how are we going to counter? And that discussion has to happen regularly in order to stay afloat. Yes. Yeah, so the example of the gorilla with the balls being passed back and forth, I think is a very, very good example. I've seen different versions of that, including one where you're focusing on a card trick and you don't notice that the curtains behind you are changing and so on. Mm -hmm. And I love those examples because before the exercise starts, everyone thinks, yeah, I'm going to catch everything. But 90% of people look around and say, what gorilla? What are you talking about, right? There's no exactly. gorilla. So I, I want to come to this because to me, this is where things go wrong in leadership. So we spoke about looking for cracks in the castle and so on, right? But that assumes the leader is able to see all these changes coming. In some examples I've seen, especially with successful boards, they specifically put someone on that board who takes an acute counter angle that's different from everyone else. So how do you think or recommend companies should be able to keep this wide eye view of what is happening? Because there's a tension here, right? On the one hand, you have to be very focused. But on the other hand, you have to be aware of what's coming from the side behind you, what's going to disrupt you, and so on. So how do you manage that balance? You know, normally in any management team, I mean, you have your CTO or your chief technology officer. Yeah. You have your head of talent. You have your chief of sales. You have your chief of marketing, et cetera, production, et cetera. You know, all of them, you should... You as the leader should task them to figure out what are the disruptions happening in their individual areas. Ask them to constantly study and report back what are the disruptions that are happening and how does that affect our roadmap? Because it's not just the leader's uh, obligation and responsibility to worry about disruptions. The entire management team needs to be thinking about this. And that is why I said we should also have an extended management team with the next layer, layer of people 
because they too must be thinking like this. And the more people in your company that are thinking like this, the more ideas you get as to what can go wrong. And you can then plan. They may also have some ideas to catapult the company forward. Yes. And you can't just rely on the first level. Maybe there are brighter ideas deeper in the company. So looking for those ideas. And that's why I also talked about inclusion and engagement with the employees. You know, I used to use a number of techniques. And one of them was having roundtable meetings twice a month with anyone in, you know, who had birthdays that month in the in the company. So oh, that's quite nice. And they would just uh, come and sit around and talk to me about things. What were their observations? What did they think were good ideas? And so gleaning these ideas constantly from the broader population, uh, also talking to analysts, reading about trends in the market, uh, reading reports, all of that actually bolsters you know, the volume of knowledge that you accumulate to say, what can go wrong? And uh, not just rest, rest on your laurels and, and be happy. You know, what you say makes a lot of sense. And I want to expand on it because I think it may be the most important point here. Many years ago, I used to be a partner in consulting and we were leading the corporate planning exercise for a large technology company. And we asked them exactly what you said, get each of your business unit leaders to make a list of all of the competitors or non-competitors that could disrupt your business. And we had this workshop and everyone listed what they had there. And then we ran focus interviews with the frontline employees, the guys who are working at the offices. And we asked them the same question, who has the competitors giving you the most problems? What we noticed is the business unit leaders focused on the most impressive competitors. The frontline employees listed those little annoying competitors that were stealing customers were at the lowest cost base. And the reason why the story is so interesting is that company that none of the business unit leaders mentioned, but all of the frontline employees mentioned was called Huawei. And this is many, many years ago before Huawei became a dominant force. And I was in that meeting and people were telling me, don't worry about Huawei. They're going after customers we don't want. We don't want these customers. They're too low cost. They don't pay our fees and so on. But the reason I bring this up is because of something you said. You got to speak to frontline employees. They often see things management cannot see. Yeah, but you also have to have a very open mind, right? Yes. You know, uh, I I often quote Lord Thomas Dewar, who said, "The mind is like a parachute; it only functions when open." I like so, that. So the thing is, how how do you get? You know, you can, of course, you listen to everything, but you have to distill it. Yes. And you have to stay true and say, you know, look at the merit of the argument. Don't dismiss it just because it came from a particular direction or a particular person, right? You have to basically get the mindset to worry and say, you know, what if this happens? Betting that your competitors are not smart is extremely bad for your company. Yes, this is a point I wanted to explore is what you're saying is that in business leaders, strategists, and so on, we tend to give more credibility to certain sources of information than others. And oftentimes we neglect or we reject valuable information because it's coming from a source that we don't think we should respect for whatever reason. 
is what you are saying. You've got to keep a very open mind and think about it doesn't matter who's saying this. Does it make sense? What's the end game? How is it going to all play out? What is the action we need to take? And in my opinion, and what I've seen is that oftentimes leaders, they have a very narrow source of trusted lieutenants that they rely on. You know, that's what earlier I also talked about managerial courage. Yes. Then you have to basically base things on the merit of the argument, not on who you know or who they know. And uh, I'm constantly looking for input, uh, not only to improve the company, but also where is the disruption coming from? How do you define disruption? Oh, you know, it could be that uh, you have a particular solution. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, everything is great. But then one of your competitors introduces something that you didn't think about. And the customer appreciates that significantly. And that topples you completely. You know, like a simple example is let's say you're working on a, on a solution where you have a wonderful, wonderful, uh, you know, I mean, let's take the example. The best example is uh, the iPhone. Yes. Right? For years, people thought uh, that, you know, the way we were doing multimedia phones was the right way. And who could challenge that? After all, the leader was selling 400 plus million phones a year. Yes. And then here came a company with inferior technology, when the world was already doing 3G, they were doing 2G. And uh, they came in with not as good technology. Yes, that's true. They came in with a brilliant user interface and design, and that's what people wanted. Yes, and I remember that two years after the iPhone launched, BlackBerry sales were still growing, and BlackBerry sales only peaked two years after the launch of the iPhone, and then the collapse took place. It was quite because a steep collapse. What iPhone did brilliantly was not just the user interface and the design, industrial design, but they had an application store. Yes. And, uh, you know, and a lot of people just missed that. And so, see, it's not just the product was just not the phone. The product was everything you know, the user interface, the applications, the ecosystem. And that is a major disruption. Yes. And, it took, and for anyone to copy that or to even mimic it or to replicate it, right, would take two or three years. And that's if at best, years. if at best. Yeah. And then if, if it takes that much time, then the competitor who created the disruption Take share. And I do recall that BlackBerry did launch an app store at some point, if I'm not mistaken. Right. But, but you know, if you're, uh, well, this is the difference between being a first mover and a late mover. Yes. If the first mover has a sizable advantage and people have got used to it because it take a user interface, if you get used to it, right, there's quite a bit of pain to move away from it. So what's the motivation to move away? And now it's not just the app store that keeps you locked in. It's the fact that your phone seamlessly integrates with your MacBook, with your yeah, iPad. It's, it's much more. You can pay bills with it. 
Exactly. You're starting to basically build a dependency of your lifestyle with the product. It becomes an operating system for your life. That's the way I think about right. it. And so, so as a result, that's and that is why earlier I called it a business model with stickiness. This is the stickiness you want to create. I mean, this stickiness also happens in a lot of cloud services. So <clears throat> many people build applications for enterprises and, and other applications on, on, a, on a cloud data center. Yes. And they build all these applications and they deploy them to all their customers to actually move away from that. This is very hard. So uh, once they've built it on a particular platform, that cloud data center probably has their business for a very long time. So it's a sticky model for the cloud data center. And it's actually true because we built our systems on a cloud data server. Mm -hmm. Everything works. But for us to audit and archive every single system we have that's running and then seamlessly recreate it on another cloud server and migrate all our clients across with a minimal disruption is practically impossible at this stage. That's right. And so that's very sticky, right? So, so because we actually tried to do it once for one of our products. Mm -hmm. And it was really hard. It took most of the company four months to do it. And we did it successfully. But then the point was we shouldn't have done it in the first place. Yeah. Another example is, let take, take for example, one of BlackBerry's business, which is called QNX. Yes. They build an operating system that is world And uh, it's in cars. And it's safety certified. And people have built applications and they've not had returns let's say they've not had returns based on this software right why change it why would you take the risk and so that's another sticky business and this is stickiness based on an attribute which is safe yes so there are many many ways of getting stickiness in your business well banking is another example because once you have all those credits going off and debits going off your debit card your credit card it's actually a lot of work to move those things. Oh, absolutely. You know, that's another example actually I provide. So I've banked with Bank of America for a long time. Yeah. And uh, after 30 years, it's going to be tough to convince me to do something else. It's going to be really tough because, because what banks have started doing, I noticed, is that they've started mining your data for you as well. They started linking it to your credit score. They started giving you advice in terms of how to manage things to improve your credit score. So at this point, even though my bank doesn't offer me a high interest rate and I could get a high interest rate from another company, but I have to trade this off against the effort of moving and the extra interest rate I'm going to get. And is it really worth it? Is it really going to work out well? Where am I going to miss some of my bills? What will be the penalties? So yeah, stickiness is an interesting thing. Do you have examples of stickiness in a B2B market beyond SaaS? Yeah, absolutely. One is intellectual property. Uh, so let's say that you're going to build uh, a chip today, yes. right? A semiconductor chip. And you're building, a, uh, let's say, a little controller for, I don't know, maybe your refrigerator, okay, for its, uh, to basically drive the compressor. Well, you know, there is a company called Arm. Uh, and Arm provides little cores, which are processing cores. Yes. Okay. And they provide that as intellectual property. So they give you this core, 
which you can integrate in your chip. And they give you a lot of tools so that you can use it, including program these chips. Now, when companies who want to build these interesting controllers license the intellectual property from ARM, it's sticky because after some time, ARM, ARM has built out a very big ecosystem to support their intellectual property. So semiconductor manufacturers uh, of designers like, like me and my company license these cores and we basically produce them. And so we, uh, the model is sticky because for every time I sell a chip, I give them, I give them a royalty. And uh, if I put this chip in a car, right, and I sell the, and these, these chips, for example, can be sold in cars for 10 years. And therefore, uh, you know, I'll be paying a royalty for 10 years. And that's a very sticky model because I, once I've certified the chip and I've installed it in the application, yes, I'm not going to rip it out. So no. that's an example of a sticky model. In fact, when I was looking at investments to make, I was looking at these chip companies and many different companies, and I was surprised how many of them make their money from royalty fees. Yeah, I mean, there it's are... It's a significant amount. Yes, uh, intellectual property, uh, a number of people sell you little blocks that you can put in your chip. And when you, when you, when you sell your chip, you pay a royalty on each block. It's a very clever model because... You just have to make that first sale and then pretty much leave it to your legal team to make sure people are paying you. No, but it's a lot of work also. You know, the yeah. model doesn't come easy because they have to invest in research. They have to make sure that they can constantly sell better versions of that intellectual property. They have to support their customers, right? They have to make sure there's an ecosystem that is supporting also their product and their customer's product. You know, it's just not the legal part. So there's a lot of investment that goes into this. And that is why they also have been successful for such a long time. Because I do remember seeing BlackBerry's results a few years ago, and I noticed a lot of money was coming in from licensing their patent portfolio. That's correct. And there's an example where a company has put in the investment many years ago. They hold the patents today and they're making money from licensing that out. So as you say, it costs a lot to build that portfolio of patents, but once you have it and you find ways to monetize it, it's a sticky model. That is right, because somebody needs it in order to build a product without violating the owner's intellectual property. And therefore, you know, the investment that they made to create that intellectual property, uh, they are just collecting a fee for it. Yes, it's very interesting. Sandeep, thank you so much for this discussion. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Michael. It was very, it was fun talking to you and uh, uh, the questions were great. Thank you so much. Yeah, I like the direction you went in because I think it'll be very useful for leaders listening to us to understand some of the things they can do better. The advice I always tell people is that whenever you're listening to advice from anyone, don't focus on everything they're saying. Find the one or two things that can cause a 20, 30% jump in your improvement because that's often what it's going to take. Sure, sure. There are always nuggets. And There's always nuggets, yes. I was surprised to see the stickiness 
in B2B non-SaaS businesses? Because often when we talk about stickiness, we think about software companies, but you give a lot of examples of hard technology companies. And fortunately in the world today, hard technology companies don't get the same kind of attention as software companies. And we miss a lot of the insights. Yeah, most most, uh, hardware businesses are low operating leverage businesses. They make a lot of money, but they're low operating leverage whereas software companies have very high operating leverage. And so the characteristics are different. And this is another aspect I touch on the book and explain some of the differences in these models. I remember speaking to Nick Santanam. He used to be a McKinsey partner, head of the materials and industrial practice out of Palo Alto. And he did an analysis which said that while America has declined in all forms of manufacturing. It's actually doing very well in advanced manufacturing. And oftentimes those companies that are doing very well are not household names, and we don't talk about them enough to get the insights from them. Yeah, you know, I know Nick. (laughs) Yeah, so we're talking about the same guy. Okay, that's good. Yes, Nick and I have met a wonderful guy, yes. It's a wonderful guy because that analysis he did in some ways goes counter to the narrative in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, where it says America is losing the manufacturing race. We're losing it in some places, but we're also winning in other places. Yeah, but I mean, it depends on, there's there's various types of manufacturing. Exactly. And uh, there's various forms of innovation. I still believe very strongly that America still is the most innovative and uh, uh, arguably uh, you know, the most advanced in technology in most areas that I've worked in. So manufacturing is one aspect, but building that intellectual property and that domain of research yes. that leads to further innovation, that pipeline, I think America still is extremely strong. And we also have the markets to apply the technology and learn from it. That's true. Sandeep, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. Hopefully, in a few months, we can bring you back in and we can do a part two. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you again. Take care. Have a great day. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.